Bible's in here somewhere. <laughs> there it is. Super excited to see my buddy Brett Farian um, this morning. He and I were in high school together running track. That guy's really fast. And then uh, Jacob Hayes, who's always usually here, we used to run with him too. And those guys were buddies of mine going all over the place. If you have your Bibles and you would like, would you turn to Matthew? We're going to start in chapter 9, verse 35. I know that was last week's passage, but we're going to start there and then move on through to 10-4. A bunch of holes in, in the seats here. This many people, all the kids left. Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 4. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's pray. God, it's a scary and powerful thing to open up your word. It's a healing thing. It's wonderful. Help us not to take it lightly this morning, Father. You have a mission for us. You've called us. You've made us your own. And I pray that would be clear, Lord, because that seems to be the passage. It seems to be what you're, you're telling us this morning. And I, and I ask, Father, for you to be here, for you to be glorified, for you to speak to each one of us. We need you, Jesus, and we we call upon your name and we ask that you would be pleased with what goes on here. Thank you for your sacrifice. In your name, amen. While I was reading this passage over and over and over again, and I'm going through the list of the disciples, um, I kept coming up with the thought, and I I know some of you might roll your eyes, over and over again I'm thinking of the (laughs) A-team. Yeah, great. Yeah, totally biblical. Um, and, and so I'm going through it and I'm thinking of the A-Team and, I, and I'm thinking of other movies that I loved watching grow up like uh, Kelly's Heroes. Yeah, The Dirty Dozen. I know there's going to be people mad. Oh, there's a radar show. Yeah, I, I know. This is church. We don't, we don't do it. Um, uh, the Magnificent Seven. Move on a little bit further. Uh, Mission Impossible. Ocean's Eleven. What was the other one I thought of? Oh yeah, it's, it's the bad guys, but the Italian job. And, and so I, I kept thinking about them over and over again, and I'm like, this is not biblical, don't think about it anymore, focus on the passage. But I was like, no, 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 there's, there's something here, there's something similar. And I was thinking, you know, all of these groups, they all had a leader. 
they all had kind of a technical guy. They had the funny guy. Those were usually my favorite ones, um, like on Kelly's Heroes, Oddball, Donald Sutherland. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Murdoch on the A-team. And so I, I, I watch these, and I always pick out someone like, hey, yeah, I like that guy the most. And they're always really fun to watch because everyone has different personalities. Someone can relate to one of them. And, and uh, so you notice that about these different things. And then, then you, 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 I like watching them because they have a mission. And they have a mission to complete. They always succeed. And so I think, man, I want to be like so-and-so. I, I want to be like this guy because obviously they're successful and they're cool. And so then I started thinking about it a little bit more. And I was like, well, really, that's kind of silly um, because there's a screenwriter. There's the playwright. There's a person that writes the script. They're the ones that write the conclusion. Um, The only reason why they're successful in their mission is because that's how the story was written. The only reason why they're cool is because they were given that part. And it was there where I thought, okay, there's there's a little bit of a bridge. Bridge there. Because isn't that also true regarding our redemption? Isn't the whole reason that we can place our confidence in God's plan to redeem us because of the fact that He is the author of our salvation? From the very beginning, God has authored a plan to save sinners. Think back as far as you want in history of mankind and you're going to be able to see that our God was working a plan of redemption Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, Adam and Eve sinned, and then they realized that they were naked. And they tried to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. And then we see our wonderful Savior's response. Look at what God does in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In the same chapter where sin entered the world, our just and holy God kills an animal or animals instead of man. And he makes for them garments that would be fitting to cover their outward nakedness. From the very beginning, God not only had a plan to clothe our outward nakedness, but also to clothe us with his righteousness. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And God is the author and the perfecter of our faith and our redemption. We go back to the scripture reading from last week that BJ read um, in Ezekiel chapter 34. It's such a powerful passage. I want to look at verses 11 through 16 again. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, and realize how many times he says I. This is about God. I, I myself will search for my sheep. And will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. 
There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. Hear God's absolute certainty and authority in His language. God makes it clear that He is going to be the one to rescue us. He Himself will bring about the salvation of His sheep. This passage that was written right there in Ezekiel, that's some 500 plus years before Jesus ever walked the earth. So from the very beginning, as we just saw in Genesis, and throughout time, God has been seeking to save His lost sheep. As we've been going through our series in Matthew, we've read about Jesus and all the miracles that He did on earth. He came to redeem us. He, He is doing all these miracles and miraculous things to show people that He is God. He is the Christ. And He is the one that is coming and reaching out to us to save us. And all along while He's going around and He's casting out demons and performing these miracles, He's got crowds of people that are following Him. And they call Him their disciples. And then God the Father brought out from all those people twelve. Twelve specific disciples that were to be around Jesus in a more inner circle sort of sense. And it's here in our, in our passage this morning where we're going to chapter 10 where we're going to see a new chapter, a new change, a new part of God's story of redemption. We're not going to see a shift in the focus or a change in God's mission but we're going to see more of God's redemptive plan revealed to us. We're going to learn God's plan of how He's going to save His lost sheep after He leaves earth and then goes back to the Father. Notice um, there's a transition going on here. Okay, If we go back to last week's passage, chapter 9, 35 and 36, it says this. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Does that verbiage sound similar or familiar to you? Something you've heard before? I I know you heard it last week. (laughs) But I mean... Further back, does that sound familiar? If you remember back at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Matthew, right before the Sermon of the Mount, it says that Jesus was going into all the synagogues and He was going everywhere proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and He was healing every affliction. He was casting out demons. And there were people following around Jesus. Jesus saw the crowds. And out of His compassion, He sat down and He began to teach. It's important for us to see that and then take a step back and look at the overall thing that's going on there in Scripture. It's kind of like there's a parenthesis around that part. Jesus' ministry on earth where He's doing all these amazing things and now there's a transition 
that's about ready to take place. We're moving forward to the next chapter in God's redemptive plan. And Jesus tells His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The harvest is God's whole focus in the Bible. We've talked about that already this morning, over and over again, all the way back to the beginning, the theme of redemption that goes throughout Scripture. It's almost as if you can take that verse about the harvest being plentiful, laborers are few, pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore to send out workers in the harvest field. You can take that verse and draw arrows going out of it, going forward and backward, upward, downward, every which way, because that, that is what it's about when it comes to the redemptive focus of Christ. The harvest is God's whole focus since the beginning of the fall. And he says that there is a harvest and that the people are ripe for the picking. And it's here where we learn God's plan of what he's about ready to do. That he's calling other people to continue his ministry and to continue proclaiming his message so that others would be saved. That is how he's going to reap the harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every affliction. So Jesus empowered his disciples here with the same kind of power that he had. This is really important to see the overall picture. So Jesus says the same thing about himself right before the Sermon of the Mount. The close of the parenthesis is at the end, right there where he says again, he says he's going around, he's proclaiming the kingdom, he's healing every, every affliction, he is casting out demons, and he has then compassion on the people, and he calls his disciples together, and he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, therefore call the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest field. And right after that, then he calls his twelve together, and he uses the exact same words, and he imparts his authority to them. The exact same thing that Jesus himself was doing, he's giving to 12. That's huge. We get the picture of a shepherd and the sheep. Jesus the shepherd, we're the sheep, we're all going astray every which way. You don't, when you see sheep out in the field with the shepherd, you don't usually see a sheep come and take the staff from the shepherd's hand and then go over and start grabbing the other sheep and going. This is an amazing thing. Jesus is... The whole plan of God is to use his own, the sheep, his sheep, to go and reach other sheep, giving them authority to do it. However, now, as we're we're going through this passage, Jesus now calls his disciples a different name. Verse 1, they're disciples. In verse 2, they're apostles. They're going from being students, that's what disciple means, to being called apostles, which means sent ones. And it's interesting because they're, they're definitely still going to be learning. They're still students. All of us are still sinners. So they, they continually need to learn, but now God is saying, now you're going to be sent ones. Now you're going to go out. You're going to be a representative of me. And you're going out into all the world and you're proclaiming 
my message. And so for all of us in here, we know, we know most of us have read and we know the whole story of Scripture. We, we've gone on further. We know that we're also supposed to go out and proclaim God's message also. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that more than likely, I don't think anyone in here has the power to go up to a dead body and say, rise, and then the body is going to rise. Or someone says, I have leprosy, and then you go touch their hand, and then the hand's going to be healed. Or you just you have the ability to just see a demon in someone and just cast out the demon somehow. And so you might wonder, well, well if we're, we're sent also like the apostles were sent, why is it then that I don't have um, some of this same great power that they have? That's a very deep topic. <laughs> um, but we have power also today. And we understand maybe some of our power a little bit better if we go and we just skip over a few chapters in Matthew and we go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is talking to his 11 disciples at that time and to us, commissioning us in the mission. And he's telling them, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. And it's a go as as you are going. It's a verb. So as you are going out, as you are going about your day, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. Okay, so everyone's like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's what he says. So, so what? <laughs> There's an absence of something in that passage that we see over here where Jesus is imparting his authority to the twelve. He doesn't say, go out into all the world as you're going, casting out demons out of people, healing every affliction. It's, it's as if more authority or the focal point of the authority and the power is in the Word of God, the message. And I think this is pretty obvious to us if we just think some, some of the most basic aspects of our church body and the power that we have. If someone is hurting, the church usually comes alongside and you pray for them. We have, we have, our, we have our prayer requests. And so we pray in God might choose to heal. God might not choose to heal. Um, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. We have different gifts. We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us to do some of those different things. Um, you might be going through a hard time in your life and just decide to take a moment where you meditate on God w- with God yourself, um, spend in some time in the Scripture reading and God speaks to you then and then and even though your world's crashing around you, you come out with peace. There's power. We do have power. But the twelve disciples that were chosen specifically for the purpose of carrying on the mission of Jesus 
while Jesus was still on earth and then doing sort of the thrust, the transition. They had some special authority and power just because that's who they were and that's what they were doing. They were the model. They're still proclaiming the kingdom that is coming. So who exactly are these 12 apostles that Jesus chose um, through the direction of the Father? We read their names in verses 2 through 4. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So there's a whole bunch of things that we can glean from the disciples that, that we're going to be able to see. Just some, some facts about them themselves, um, some things that we could see with uh, the way that the names are listed in each of the passages and everything. And so there's going to be a bunch of bullet points, little facts that I just want to bring forward. And then maybe from some of that we can draw a message that God is telling us this morning. First of all, um, the list of the disciples is in four of the different books, four books in the Bible. In three of those books, 12 of the disciples are, are listed. In Acts, when it called, well, disciples, apostles, I guess we're talking about apostles now. But when it mentions their names, there's only 11 of them mentioned because by that time, Judas um, has died. So three of the lists have 12, one has 11. Peter is always listed first. Judas Iscariot is always listed last. Um, Philip is always in the number five position. Um, it looks like they're grouped into groups of four. We got the first four, the second four, and the third four. We know the most about the first four. We know less about the next four. We know even less about the last four except for Judas. Some commentators look at it and they say, well, um, maybe Peter is the leader. And, and I think a lot of us would say, yeah, he's probably gifted in leadership. We know a lot about him. He, he wrote First, Second Peter. We see that he's usually a spokesperson. He's talking. Is that, is that why he's always listed first? Possibly. But he's, uh, he's always number one. Then some even break it down even more and say, well, maybe Philip was a leader of the second group. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, is the leader of the third group. And so then they start breaking away and saying, well, see, see the, the importance of small groups. And they go into all these... And so, so you can start analyzing this thing like there, there's 12 names there. <laughs> and we know certain things about them. One thing, though, that is important um, to see with that is we can draw some of those things. We could say, yeah, Peter's always mentioned first. He's probably gifted in leadership um, and some of those different things. But there's no hierarchy. That's something Matthew makes clear over and over and over again the Christocentric theme in the book of Matthew. Christ is the one that's powerful. Christ is the one that chooses. It is about God. He even says it when, when he goes to introduce the 12 names in the book of Matthew. He does it differently than the other Gospels. He puts in the word His. Called to Him His 12 apostles. Disciples, and then it goes to apostles. Making it clear, they're His. The authority is is mine. In fact, the whole idea that's going against um, any sort of hierarchy um, within the apostles is is the idea that that's Jesus' teaching all over Scripture. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Um, 
Even in the epistles, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see it's always about dying to ourselves. If you, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross and die daily. So when we see some of the other religions and stuff that might place a certain plat, platform for bishops or um, different clergy within the church or sometimes even give too much credit and stuff to the twelve apostles, although they are held in a special position because they were the twelve. Um, we need to remember Christ. Christ is the author. It appears that six of the twelve disciples were brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and then James and Thaddeus, sons of Alphaeus, which is interesting. Half of them, half of them brothers. Um, their jobs. We know about some of their jobs. We know that Peter, James, Andrew, and John were fishermen. So, if you want to, never mind. I won't say anything. All right, Philip, we don't know what he did. We know that his name means loves horses. Maybe he had something to do with horses. I don't know. Bartholomew, um, also known as Nathaniel. So, when you look at some of the other lists and it says Nathaniel, there's enough behind that that says they're the same person. We don't know what he did. Matthew, we know, is a tax collector. And here's something we should pause on too. Notice in the list of the 12 that Matthew records here, and Matthew's the author, he refers to himself as Matthew, the tax collector. But he doesn't refer to any of the other ones by their vocation. Why? Once again, that Christocentric theme. Remember when Pastor Bob was, was teaching about when uh, he called Matthew the tax collector to be his disciple, um, he talked about how lowly the tax collectors were looked down upon. They were the ones that swindled people out of their money. They were basically sold out for the mighty dollar. They were working at the hand of the government, and they were taken from people. And so they were referred to as tax collectors and sinners. They're, the, they're sinners. That, that was their other title. And so Matthew here, he says, and Matthew the tax collector. It's as if he's trying to magnify the fact that it was by God's grace and His grace alone that I'm even an apostle. We see that. That's so powerful. You see, you see within, within the names, there's a message. Thomas, they think he was a carpenter. That's extra biblical text. I have no idea why, but that's, that's what I read. Maybe he was a carpenter. James, we don't know, but we think he might have been a zealot. Also, extra biblical Thaddeus, um, we don't know anything about him as far as his job. We know that he has four names that he's been referred to as. Thaddeus, um, Jude, Judas, and Lebius. Simon, um, we know he was a zealot. In this passage, he's referred to as Simon the Cananean. Not because he's from Canaan, but because the Cananeans were part of the zealots. They were a sect in the zealots. And the zealot party was anti-Roman. Yeah, they were so anti-Roman that they would kill Romans. Um, they taught, their leaders taught that do not support anything that is going to support the Romans. Remember the Romans, they were the, the Roman Empire. They were powerful. They had taken over all this area. They were in control. They were the ones that you paid taxes to. And so, if he was a zealot like that, Simon the Zealot, 
Simon the Cananean, then he probably was starshly against paying any taxes to Caesar. Another thing that's really interesting about that is we just talked about Matthew, who was a tax collector. And now these guys are buddies. Well, we don't really know. We didn't see like where they're hanging out. Maybe they didn't hang out as much. But God brings together the opposite. People who would not usually be together. God's placing them together. And Jesus, when he was asked, well, do we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, well, whose, whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's? And to God, what is God's? So it would appear that even Jesus approved of paying taxes. And here we have a follower that has left everything to come and follow our, our Savior. And last and least, Judas Iscariot, who was the treasurer for the disciples. I don't know if that's because that's what he used to do, um, but he was the treasurer for the disciples. And his last name is not Iscariot. Most commentators um, believe that Iscariot means of Kerioth, which is a city in Judah. Here's what's interesting about it. Eleven of the apostles were from the northern part of Galilee. Judas, the only one, was from the southern, from Judah. Jesus is often referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the one who betrayed him is from Judah. I wanted to think about that more and try to study a little bit more about it. I, I didn't, but I think that's very interesting. We don't know what happened to these 12 apostles um, later in life. Um, we, know that two of, we know about two of them because Scripture tells us for sure two of them. We know Judas, um, after he betrayed Jesus, was paid the money, went and bought land, then he went into that land, died there, burst open, and, and it, it was a mess, I guess. He died. And we know... That in Acts 12:2, James the son of Zebedee um, was killed by the sword because uh, by King Agrippa, he put him to death by the sword. Um, extra biblical texts tell us that possibly seven or eight of the other apostles were also martyred, um, crucified possibly upside down, crucified on an X-type cross um, by the spear, by the sword, beheaded. Um, but we don't know for sure. Those are other texts. We know for sure the other ones because that's what the Bible says. It appears, though, that even though we don't know a lot about the twelve, and we know a lot more than what I just told you, but we don't know a lot about the twelve. But even what we do know, we see that there are a lot of things that we can draw from. We can draw from the fact that God cares about diversity. God has brought together people that aren't alike, people that don't think alike, people that wouldn't usually come together, people that maybe even would want to kill each other um, prior to. He brings them together. God wants us all to be one. He wants to break barriers, and He does break barriers. We see this prayed by our Savior right before He was crucified on the cross. John 17, 20-23, we read it this morning. It's powerful. Let's read it again. I do not ask for these only, talking about the twelve, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This prayer isn't just for the twelve. This is prayer for us. Jesus comes in and he breaks barriers and he puts in a group of people that don't look alike. And when we look around, we we need to see that because Jesus cares about diversity, because he is going, he says he's going to bring in all peoples. All groups of people from all over the earth. He cares about diversity. In fact, it's a picture of Him. He wants us to be one even as He is one with the Father. When people see us, they should see the Father. And because God cares about this, we we should ask the question, we should look at our our own body of believers here at our church and we we should ask the question, are do we look like Jesus? I think, I think in many ways we do. I mean, there is compassion. There's definitely diversity within our own body. But we should also look at us compared to the community we live in around us. Does the diversity within our congregation seem like it's a good representation of the diversity that's outside the walls of our building this morning? Are there people that you wouldn't usually associate with or maybe feel comfortable around or a culture that's different than yours that needs to be reached or someone that needs to hear the gospel in that group? And maybe we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest which we're laborers, all of us, say, God, give me a heart for that. Give me a heart for those people. Help me to love like you love. One of the most amazing experiences I had um, when we were at Bible school, and I went to Simpson with Brett too, um, we went to New York, and uh, it was a free trip. I, I, we, were, we, were looking at, we were looking at a seminary in Nyack. But we visited uh, Dave Wilkerson's church. I didn't know I didn't know who it was at the time. Yeah, we we went in there, Times Square Church, and it was I couldn't figure out like is there more white people here, more black people, more Asians, more Indian? It was so diverse, and the worship was just like, I mean, people were just free, and I was I, I was just like tingles all over me. I was, this must be heaven. This is, this is what heaven is like. And I thought, there's going to be a black preacher that gets up here and we're going to get down. And then this old white guy comes walking up there and then I hear the black dude over saying, Amen. Man, this is powerful. It was so awesome. It's so awesome because God, we all make up 
God, like like when, when, when there's diversity together in love, that's a picture of Christ. Hands and feet, toes, nails, whatever. Who, who, what are you? Right? We've all been given different gifts. We all look different. We all, all these different things. And, and God is calling us to use these gifts to reap His harvest. There's so many different passages that talk about the gifts. I chose Romans 12. Let's read it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace... Notice this everywhere in Scripture. Grace, grace, grace. God's the one that always does the work. That's the grace. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God didn't stop proclaiming the gospel when he died on the cross and he went up to heaven. He didn't stop proclaiming who he was when the twelve apostles died. He is still proclaiming his message of the kingdom through us. And he's given us the gifts to do it. He always equips the called. And we're all called. To be a missionary... Some people say, I am a missionary, and we think we think of that as a vocation. Someone that, is, that, that goes out to another part of the world or, or a different group or whatever. And, and yeah, that is what they do maybe full time, and they're a missionary. But this calling is for all of us. We are all missionaries in the sense of proclaiming the gospel as you are going. Every day, everywhere we are going. Do you know your gift and are you actively using your gift or gifts to proclaim the kingdom? You might ask yourself, um, after looking at this list of the twelve, after knowing how lame people are in general (laughs) on the outside and all of the problems that we have in our world, um, even within the church and Christians and sin in our lives and everything, why would God choose to show himself through us. Why didn't he just take his power, his mighty hand, which he could do whatever he wants to do, that's right, that's righteous, and just heal people himself? Why does he choose us to do it? I want to go again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I know I referred to this the last time um, I spoke, but we're going to go past those verses to kind of see what, what's going on here. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll start with verse 6.
Verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that was the picture of how we're saved, right? We're dark. There's utter darkness. God speaks. There's light in us. There's a treasure there. That is God working in us. Continuing, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. You're a jar of clay. I'm a jar of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God is glorious. God is great. God saves. God does all of these things. But He has decided to use us because we are jars of clay, because in our weakness, He is strong. In our darkness, He shines through. When we're crying, He's our comfort. Our weakness magnifies His greatness. Says we're jars of clay, so I'm pretty basic when I picture things. You might have noticed when I use the analogy of the eighteen. A jar of clay. You can't see through a jar of clay. So there's a treasure in it. Treasure in the jar of clay. Lots of light. Let's put a lid on it so the light's not going out of it. So there's a jar of clay, lid on it, lots of light beaming through. You cannot see the light. Then you're a sinner, right? We're all sinners. We sin, we do things that are wrong, we stumble, we fall, we go through affliction, we go through different trials and times, and there's a crack goes into our jar. And that light is bright. It's the smallest crack. You see that light starting to shine through. And you get another crack, another light, more cracks. And then, and then there's also the potter and the clay. He's, he's molding it. Until eventually... We are so broken, so cracked, so rid of who we are in our bodies that all you see is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All power is seen in Him. And we see that as we continue in these verses. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we, for we live, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. See that? see that? See the theology and suffering right there? We're always given over to suffering for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. Now we're talking about each other. It's all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight and glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's plan of redemption is perfect and loving. Do you feel low? Are you hurting? Are you afflicted in some way? Do you feel inadequate that your past, your sin that you've had in the past is holding you down and God is not going to use you any further because Satan keeps reminding you of that? Or is your mission, is your message to the people around you, to your children, to the people that are, that are all around us, is, is it having problems coming out because you think you are too weak? That you are worthless? That you are a sinner? That you're going through so much in life? I mean, it encompasses anything and everything that's bad that's going on in your life. If you know Christ, you have His power inside of you. You are a clay jar that's getting cracked for Him. Your weakness is okay in the sense that you'll find your strength in Him. And when you find your strength in Him and you persevere because He is in you doing the perseverance, everyone else looks and says, you must have a great God. You must be a powerful God. And you'll be satisfied and you will have your strength in Him and worship Him. Be encouraged. Know, know that God working salvation in you is powerful. And He's given you gifts to use for Him. God has had this plan of redemption since the beginning of time, and one day, we will live with Jesus in heaven free of sin. God has revealed His intention to restore Israel over and over again. Um, in our passage um, that we read this morning, during that time frame, there was only two, two and a half of the tribes that were really still together. At that time. From the original 12. And if you know something about scripture. You know that. There's so many different elements. That are always proclaiming the glory of God. And one of those elements is numbers. Numbers mean something in scripture. Three. Seven. Twelve. Twelve is a powerful number. Twelve tribes. Israel. By calling 12, I don't think it's any mistake. I don't think it's just some random thing. God is showing His desire and intention to restore Israel, to bring His people back together. And we see that in Revelation chapter 21. Let's go there. Let's, let's, let's end with the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, starting with verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, that's us, the wife of the Lamb, which is Jesus. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Check out number 14, verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, foundation of the new Jerusalem. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I don't think Judas's name is on there. I think it's Matthias, the one that replaced him. And then let's skip ahead to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. So here's Jerusalem, no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know someone whose name probably isn't saved? Do you know someone who you would love to know? I I would like to know that their name is in the Lamb's book of life. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into the harvest. Let's let's have communion.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is hallelujah. All, all I have is you. Lord, I, I pray that we would desire you and you would give us the ability to see that all we need is You. I thank You for drinking the cup of wrath. And saving us from our sin. Lord Jesus, please be pleased to speak through our body here to the world. And I pray for revival. In Your name. Amen.